Welcome to The Lowdown, a podcast of news and ideas from the Columbia Alumni Association. Alex Finley, who is a graduate of Columbia College and the Columbia School of Journalism, joined the CIA in 2003, where she spent close to six years as an officer of the CIA's Directorate of Operations, serving in West Africa and Europe. Before she joined the agency, she was no stranger to Washington, D.C. or politics. As she puts it, she chased puffy white men around Washington, D.C. as a member of the Wild Dog Pack, better known as the Washington Media Elite. After leaving the CIA in 2009, she returned to writing and soon found that her voice lent itself well to humor. In addition to her work for Slate, Reductress, and Funny or Die, she is also about to publish a book. Victor in the Rubble, a satire of the CIA and the War on Terror, comes out next week. It was inspired by her time at the CIA and some of the bureaucratic frustrations that she had. Also, it should be mentioned that Alex Finley is her pen name. In our recent interview, Alex spoke about the book, her work with the agency, and what the future of the CIA might look like. Can you tell me a little bit about Victor and the Rubble? So it follows the story of Victor Caro, who's a counterterrorism officer, uh, who is chasing a terrorist in West Africa in a post-9-11 world. And he, as he chases after this terrorist, he finds, in fact, that his bureaucracy is putting up obstacles for him every step along the way. At the same time, our terrorist, Omar al sukkot flares by it, or loyalty, to a larger organization, the larger terrorist organization, who's sort of trying to centralize terror attacks and streamline how they carry out terror throughout the world. So he swears by it to them and finds that, in fact, he faces a number of bureaucratic challenges as well. So while each of them is trying to achieve their objective, they find they have a common enemy in red tape. So what interested you about working for the CIA? My interest was not necessarily the CIA directly, but I think I knew I wanted an international career and I wanted adventure. I was very lucky to grow up in a household where we traveled a lot. My parents took us around the world, and that definitely instilled in me a sense of adventure and discovering new places and discovering new cultures, and I, I loved it. I just loved it. Um, on top of that, then I had a great high school teacher. I was fortunate to have a great high school teacher who introduced me to geopolitics and international relations and national security, and I was hooked. Uh, it's important to remember the, the context. I was sort of coming of age at the end of the Cold War. The the uh, the Eastern Wall, the excuse me, the Berlin Wall was falling, and the entire geopolitical chessboard was changing. And so, it was a very interesting time to be. Uh, learning about national security and learning about international affairs. And so I just knew already at that point that I wanted to do something international. I also wrote a lot, and I knew I loved writing. I knew one day I wanted to write a book of some kind. Um, I ended up going to journalism school thinking I would probably do some kind of an international writing career. But intelligence was always something that interested me. In fact, my junior year at Columbia, I applied for an internship at the CIA. I did not get in. Um, I now know much later that I probably would have spent my summer pulling staples out of documents so they could be shredded. So it was probably just fine that I didn't get it. Um, but it definitely um, opened up the interest to me of working there. And in fact, when you know years later I was presented the opportunity to do it, I I took it and I went ahead and I applied 
And um, my third day on the polygraph machine, I questioned if that was the right decision, but I pushed forward anyway, and uh, lo and behold, I got the job. Alex joined the agency in 2003. As she explains, that was a pretty intense place to be at the time. So I joined the agency at a very tumultuous time where everything was changing. We were about 18 months out of 9-11, and we were about to invade Iraq under the premise that there was weapons of mass destruction there. Um, And, of course, the agency was central to all of this. Um, The agency was being blamed for uh, intelligence failures for 9-11, and then when there were no WMD found in Iraq, it was being blamed uh, for the intelligence that led to that war. So it was a very strange time to be there. And then in 2004, to fix all of these intelligence failures, which I think is a very unfair term, but that's for the historians to decide one day. But as a result, in 2004, they launched this intelligence reform, um, and it created the Directorate of National Intelligence. And this added a whole new level to the intelligence community. There was a whole new level of bureaucracy. And while the DNI, its stated purpose was to make sure that all of the agencies within the intelligence community were cooperating and coordinating so that something like 9-11 would never happen again, um, it's very hard to change a huge organization and a huge bureaucracy. So a lot of the time that I was at the agency, nobody really knew yet what the DNI was doing. And the joke was always, if you asked, well, what does the DNI do? They would respond, well, our mission is still evolving. And so there was a lot of confusion about how all these new things were going to work, who was sharing with whom and who was working with whom. People who had never been involved in intelligence suddenly were involved in in intelligence. For example, the FBI which had always been a law enforcement agency, was told that it now had uh, an intelligence component. So it was a lot of, um, you know, it was a very rough period with everybody trying to find their way after what was called an intelligence failure. So that definitely affected um, my experience at the agency. So it was indeed a very political time. Hmm. And people, you know, people on the inside were being, uh, you know, we're being played as uh, as pawns in this larger political game. And that's a very frustrating thing. Okay, full disclosure, I don't entirely understand the infrastructure of the CIA and who does what. So I asked Alex to explain it. So at the time that I was there, your main components when people think of the CIA, you had the Directorate of Intelligence, those are the analysts, and you had the Directorate of Operations, those are the people that you think of when you think of spies. They're the ones who go out and collect the information. Um, There are other parts, but those are the main two parts that people generally think of. So I worked in the Directed of Operations, or the DO, uh, because we love our acronyms here in Washington. So I was uh, what was called a collections management officer, or a CMO. So I was a CMO in the DO, and my job was to bridge the DO to the DI. So basically what I did was I worked with the consumers of our raw intelligence. The consumers mostly were the analysts. So I would work with analysts to figure out what were the gaps in intelligence, what information did they need, and I would help to write up the requirements and then figure out how we could get answers to those requirements. Um, What sources did we have? What case officers were working on cases uh, where they could possibly get this kind of information? And then there was a, a, a part of the job was validating that information and helping to validate the sources. So I was really the bridge between the two sides. Well, so in that role, what did you find most rewarding about that work? Well, so <laughs> the role that I had was fun in a way because I was working with both sides. Uh, analysts and case officers are very different people. They're two very different sets of 
uh, skill sets, I would say. An analyst is very analytical, obviously. They use big words like paradigm and rubric, and they can tell you the make of a missile out of a Russian plant from 1946, um, and they'll tell you with great enthusiasm, they'll draw up the schematics, and they, it's incredible what they know. A case officer, on the other hand, probably doesn't have much verb, subject-verb correlation, um, but a case officer can find a bottle of Johnny Walker in a Playboy magazine uh, in a Middle Eastern country on a Friday during prayers. So these are very different skills. And I got to work with both of them. And so that's fun. That, that was very rewarding because I got to cover a lot of topics that I found interesting, and I got to work with very smart, very interesting people. Um, so that was definitely one of the rewards of working there. And then, of course, the other part was it, it fulfilled this whole idea of adventure that I had had. I got to travel. I got to go to places I never would have been able to go. I lived in West Africa. I lived in Europe. I traveled around. And I got to do things and see things I probably would not have been able, well, I would not have done necessarily on my own. So those were the rewards. Why did you decide to leave when you did? I, I started seeing the disconnect between what was needed to move up in the organization and what was actually needed, I felt, to fulfill the mission of the organization. So a lot of the bureaucracy that was put into place, um, I've written quite a bit about it on my blog, this idea of putting in metrics and measuring quantity, but not necessarily measuring the value of something. And I think a lot of the bureaucracy that was put into place with the intelligence reform and as a response to 9-11 and as a response to, 2000, to the Iraq uh, WMD issue, you ended up with a lot of short-term incentives um, for individuals that did not match the long-term objectives um, of the organization. And so to me, what was required to move up wasn't worth it, basically. Mm. Um, I, I didn't feel that it matched the mission, and I wasn't ready to do some of the things excuse me, some of the things that I could see would be required. Also, I kind of saw the writing on the wall. Um, Director John Brennan now has introduced a reorganization of the agency, and he really is pulling down the wall that used to exist between the analysts and the operators. Hmm. And they're starting to work together a lot more. And my guess is that the role that I had when I was there is probably obsolete or redundant by now because they're working so much closer together. Do you think that's a move in the right direction, having the analysts and the operators work closer together? So I think there are pros and cons. Mm-hmm. Um, here in Washington, it's all, it's all the talk, um, uh, at least within the intelligence community. So there are definitely instances where having analysts and operators working close together creates uh, magic. That seems to work really well, mm-hmm. and the objective is achieved, and it's great. Uh, however, I think trying to put blanket regulations that state this is always how it's going to be is can cause problems. And there is concern, I think, within the intelligence community that the operational side of the house has been brought down a notch um, a little bit by this reorganization, that a number of management positions have been opened up to analysts, for example, and there's some fear about who who is going to have a say over how everything works. And in addition, there is a much bigger emphasis now on data and digital Mm -hmm. collection. And a lot of people think you can find all of the answers in data. 
I don't personally. I think that human intelligence is incredibly important and we need to keep that uh, capability. Um, but I think that that's starting to go away a little bit with so much emphasis put on collection of data. What do you think is the downside of putting that much emphasis on data? The thing is, today there's so much information that's available open source, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. it's a completely different world than it was 20 years ago. There's a lot of information, and most of the information that you need to know you can find. Um, So to me, the Directorate of Operations and Human Intelligence Operations should be saved for this tiny tranche of information that you just can't find elsewhere. Um, But they're the only agency that can do it. And that capability needs to be maintained. Unfortunately, I think it's uh, it's a disappearing capability. Um, with all of these wars that we've been having and so many people being sent to war zones for two, three, even four or five tours, you have a lot of younger officers who are coming up who've only ever operated in a war zone. Mm-hmm. And that's not covert, right? If you're trying to go out in a war zone to meet with somebody, you're going out with armed personnel carriers and um, all kinds of military around you with big guns. That's not clandestine. Um, mm. You can't do something like that in you know, a major city in Europe or something, for example. Um, and I think that the people forgot that we may have other adversaries again. It was very easy to get caught up in the war on terror and to forget there are other adversaries. And yet we look around now and uh, some of our Cold War adversaries are coming back. Hmm. And if we don't have the capabilities to carry out the kind of tradecraft that we need to, uh, I think we'll be at a disadvantage. Do you think this year's presidential election will affect any of these changes or where the CIA is headed in general? Yeah, I actually don't think that the presidential election will affect it much. Hmm. I think... No president, with the exception of George Bush Sr., who actually ran the CIA, I don't think any president who comes in has a very strong understanding of how the agency functions. That may not be true with Hillary Clinton. I think she probably, as Secretary of State, interacted enough that she has some idea. But in any case, I think that whoever comes in to replace John Brennan, um, assuming that he doesn't stay with the new administration, uh, will still probably be an insider. It will be somebody from the inside who gets moved up. And so I'm not sure that there'll be a huge change in the culture. The other part to keep in mind is that John Brennan has just introduced this reorganization and it would be very difficult to to bring in a new person like next year, for example, and try to just change everything again. Mm. Any kind of a reorganization like he's trying to do, uh, because it's really a fundamental shift what he's doing, I think any new director would have to give it a certain amount of time because otherwise it would just be so tumultuous. There'd be so much... Uh, havoc that nothing would really function. Well, so I'm not really sure that, that the next president would affect either way uh, how the agency goes. And then in terms of you know long term, how the agency will be, uh, like I said, I, I have my worries because I do think there's this emphasis now on digital collection and much less on human collection. And I'm just an old school traditional spy. I think that human collection is still uh, should be a top priority. It's changes like this that inspired Alex to write Victor in the Rubble. She even described the process as a kind of catharsis. Plus, satire gave her the opportunity to highlight some of the absurdities of her experiences without having to reveal any specifics. So there was one day I was still at the agency, and I had collected a few little anecdotes of absurdity along the way. A number of 
you know, sort of these catch-22s that happen to us in this bureaucracy while this enormous war, war on terror is happening around us. But there was one day in particular that I remember um, we were all in the office and something in Yemen blew up. It's a sign of the times. I no longer remember what it was that blew up, but something blew up. And we were watching this TV and watching the flames of in the aftermath of this attack. And the chief of station came out and walked up to an officer who was there in the office, who at the time was a 12-year uh, counterterrorism case officer, and asked him why he had not yet filled out his agency employee satisfaction survey. And here we are staring at a TV where something has just blown up. And I thought that this case officer was going to completely lose it. And he yelled uh, at the COS and said, you know, the terrorists are not filling out expletive forms. And he walked out. And I said to myself, well, that's really funny. What if the terrorists were filling out forms? That's kind of funny. And so um, that's what I decided when I left. I had this story I felt I needed to tell. Uh, like I said, it was a catharsis. It was a way of dealing with a lot of the frustrations that I had at the agency. And so I took some of my stories and some of my colleagues' stories, and I put them all together. And I decided, what if the terrorists had to go through the bureaucracy that we go through? And so let's take this bureaucratic system and let's superimpose it on the terrorists and let's just see what happens. And so that was how Victor in the Rubble was born. This book is not the first time that Alex has drawn on her time with the CIA. In fact, much of her writing for trade publications tend to focus on the CIA. But whenever possible, she tries to infuse a little humor into those reports. Yeah, a lot of what I've written actually has been about the agency or about terrorism. Mm-hmm. I, I just think we, we all as a as a society, we suffered for a very long time, and we all lived in fear for a very long time. And I'm not sure that that serves in any way. Uh, and so I like the idea of laughing and making fun of it and making fun of the terrorists and making fun of ourselves. And mm-hmm. I think there's a lot to make fun of because it is so absurd. Uh, you know, when I was working with the editor on Victor in the Rubble, there were a number of things. So I have terrorists giving PowerPoint presentations in Victor in the Rubble and um, you know, filling out applications to swear by it to join the, the bigger group, and it's sort of like a college application. And there were some of these things. The editor was like, this is too ridiculous. These are too made up. Well, at the time when I wrote it, you know, ISIS didn't exist yet. We hadn't even heard of ISIS. But, of course, now we see that I, I wasn't so far off. I was <laughs> making it up. But, in fact, um, you know, we, we have, you know, all these uh, documents now that have been collected and are coming out. They, ha- they have an HR group for ISIS. There actually is an application. There is a form to fill out. So uh, there is a question. If you're martyred, who do we contact? Um, So they actually are. Yeah. Wow. So, um, and the more documents that we find, for example, on bin Laden, as they release these troves of documents that they founded from the uh, Abbottabad raid, uh, you know, he he had a, he ran a centralized organization and he had issues with certain franchises and he had to he had HR problems with certain people. And now we're starting to see all of that. I also had terrorists who were, you know, my in Victor and the Rebel who were on Facebook and who were on Twitter. And the editor was like, this is ridiculous. Well, I had based it on years ago, uh, a member from Al-Shabaab did a full um, interview with a journalist over Twitter. And I always thought it was so funny. He's in Somalia, which, you know, I can hardly print something here in the middle of Washington, D.C. Here he is in a war-torn 
country that has hardly any electricity, and yet he's able to tweet. And so I always think that the juxtaposition is so funny because I'm so, uh, you know, unable to do it, even though I have all the infrastructure around me. And these guys are so resourceful that he's giving an interview over Twitter. Um, and so I just took that concept and ran with it. And so I have these guys tweeting and on Facebook and doing all these things. And the editor thought it was a little bit absurd. I said, well, it is absurd, but it's also not that absurd because it's true. The juxtaposition of it with reality is funny. Uh, and so that was also where I took a lot of my inspiration. As Alex spoke about her inspiration for the book, I was curious to know how her time at Columbia prepared her for both her work with the CIA as well as her writing career. That It prepares you, I think, for anything. That's the wonderful thing about an education like Columbia. You come out and you're ready to take on whatever comes your way. I studied and majored in history and political science, and so all of that helped me understand, yeah, the world that we live in, because I do think that understanding history is a huge part of geopolitics and understanding how these players are moving on the chessboard. In terms of writing, Columbia yeah. was definitely huge for me. Um, I was on the creative team for the Varsity Show to work with very talented people who are now extremely famous um, and to learn from them to see how they worked and to see how uh, a creative process can come together and create something great. So definitely in those ways, my Columbia education was uh, integral to what I do. Victor and the Rubble comes out April 15th, so be sure to grab a copy from our alumni bookshelf by going to alumni.columbia.edu slash bookshelf. This podcast was produced by the Columbia Alumni Association. Columbia University is a mecca of great ideas in one of the world's greatest cities. And with over 320,000 Columbia alumni who are leaders in every field imaginable and spread across the world, the Columbia Alumni Association brings you the latest musings, updates, and insights from Columbia University. Learn more about the Columbia Alumni Association at alumni.columbia.edu. And to get even more news and ideas from Columbia, check out the lowdown.alumni.columbia.edu.